Duncan. I've been uh, following along this theme of the emotionally healthy Christian and kind of looking into that. And so the belief behind this is that we're created for great relationship. And that means vertically, it means we're built, we're created for great relationship with God. It means we're created for great relationship with one another. And we are created for great relationship with ourselves. Okay, so it's just reminding you of where we're coming from. And so when we do this, there are things that we do in life that draw us closer to other people, or whether it's to God, you know, they create harmony, and there are things we do that promote healthy relationships. And then there are things that we do that create division. They, they draw people apart, and they create difficulty in relationships. And so a couple of the things that I've spoken on previously, uh, I spoke on offense, and I spoke on forgiveness. And so we're going to just kind of go on and build upon this theme because ultimately my, my heart for you, which I believe is God's heart for you, is that we enter into the things that he wants and that part of that is good relationships, um, particularly with him. And then from that will flow good relationships with others as well. Um, I want to ask you a question. And I, I want to ask this question because it's a question I've heard asked and it's the sort of question you might hear someone ask on like an interview panel or something like that i think we did it at a youth event um as well and the question is what's your most embarrassing moment what's your most embarrassing moment now i want you to turn to your neighbor and tell them your most embarrassing moment okay you don't have to do it you don't have to do it if you don't want to because you know what (laughs) When I get asked that question, there's a part of me that has all these memories. I've lost you all now. Everyone's enjoying themselves too much now. (laughs) But you lot seem really good at this bit. Okay, back in the room, back in the room. No? That's the, that's the wrong audience. All right. Oh, see you later. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. When I have heard that question... There's a part of me that squirms as I remember kind of some of the things I did as a kid. Um, Things I was like, yeah, it was great fun, um, but I don't really want everyone to know about it. Um, So I'm going to ask you another question then. I want you to turn to your neighbor. What is your most shameful moment? Now, again, I'm not expecting you to tell anyone this. But I wonder in that moment what your feeling is. Because you lot, when I asked you what your most embarrassing moment is, there was a lot of giggles, there was a lot of smiles, and and in a sense, you know, I might not want you to know some of the things I've done in my past uh, that I'm embarrassed about, but actually a lot of them are quite funny. Um, But when we think about things that we might feel shameful about, suddenly we don't want to turn to our neighbour and tell them. Because these are the things that are deep within us. These are the things that we've maybe tried to lock away. And when we think about them, maybe the shutters come down. 
When we've got shame in our hearts, we find it hard to look someone in the eye. You know, if you felt shame towards someone, about someone, or about something, and maybe your eyes, and maybe even literally in that moment when I said, what's shameful, there was something in you that went, and, and looked down, that whether you did it physically or just emotionally. And this is the, the reason that shame is, is one of those things that brings division and separation in relationship. Um, if we think about the very root of shame, shame um, came right at the beginning where Adam and Eve were in the garden and you know what? They were naked. And they, they didn't care. They had nothing in their hearts that exposed them. They had nothing in their hearts that devalued them. And they had this great relationship with God. But the moment sin came in, suddenly they realized their nakedness, but also they realized something else was wrong about them. And what did they do? They, they hid themselves. They ran away. And this is, is the root of shame. It causes us to run away because suddenly we feel vulnerable. Suddenly we feel exposed. We feel... Um, we just don't want other people to see us in that way. And in that moment, in their nakedness, in their vulnerability, they didn't want even God to see them that way. And in relationship, if you hide, you can't have relationship. Now, you might have relationships, again, where you are, you're cordial with one another. You know, you talk to one another. But there's a part of you that is hidden. There's a part of you that is other people are not allowed to see. You don't want anyone knowing that part of you. Because what we actually do, deep down we fear rejection. We fear that if you knew what I was really like, if you knew this, this thing about me, then you would reject me. And so the way we overcome that is we keep distance. And so we're, therefore if we're keeping distance then it's impossible really to have relationship because there's a distance between us. So let's just have a think and, um, about, first of all, just understanding what is shame. And there's this quote uh, to read. It says, A pervasive sense of shame is the ongoing premise that one is fundamentally bad, inadequate, defective, unworthy, or not fully valid as a human being. Maybe just take a moment to read that again. A pervasive sense of shame is the ongoing premise that one is fundamentally bad, inadequate, defective, unworthy, or not fully valid as a human being. So what shame will do, it, this is at its very root, will come and deny worth. It removes value and it dehumanizes a person. And as, I, as we look at this today, my, my brother asked me kind of what examples am I going to share? And the thing is, there are so many examples because shame can come in through so many different things. I almost want to say in, in a million and one kind of anything. Shame can come in. Um... But what we get, so I, I can't give every example this morning. I will give some. But what we want to do is recognize the core sense that is coming so we can recognize whether there's shame in our lives. Um, this has been a very difficult sermon to prepare. 
And, and the, the one reason, and to, it's a difficult one to deliver as well. And the first reason for that is that it's a really deep subject. Now, it's deep in many different ways, just in terms of its vastness, in terms of its complexity, in terms of its emotional impact. And, and I've read, I've studied a lot. It's funny, like, I've been cramming in these past, even this morning, cramming to get things in. Um, but part of, I've been actually preparing this probably for six months, um, which... If you're ever preparing a subject when you've got so much in your head, actually what you're trying to do when you preach is work out, how can I share all of this in 40 minutes or whatever it might be, 50 minutes, um, but not leave out kind of something that's really important. And so my prayer for us this morning is that God will come by his spirit and really minister truth. And so whether he, through me speaking the words or just by his spirit, that he will reveal things into your heart. The other reason this was difficult is because, as I, again, as I studied this more and more, that I realized that I struggle with issues of shame. Um, and it's really, therefore, hard even to come and share something that you're kind of working through in yourself. About 20 years ago, God did an amazing thing in my life where he really released me from feelings um, of of lacking worth, um, of trying to be good enough for him, an amazing sense of feeling accepted by him. Um, and, and you can have a moment like that, but as I looked more and more into this subject, I was like, oh, yeah, there's still that trait. There's still that trait that I carry. And, and so it's, there's a real struggle in that uh, to realize, yeah, this is something that I'm still working through myself. And so one of the questions I might have for you this morning is, is this an issue for you? Because some of you might be very aware of it already. The moment I mentioned the word shame, something hit your heart like a ton of bricks. You know, and it's like, oh, because you're just so acutely aware of something that you are carrying. I even wondered, because I've shared the subject that I was um, speaking on today with people throughout the week, and there was a part of me that wondered of, everyone turn up you know because you don't want to be exposed it can be something so very close to your heart that you think I, I just want to hide you know just like Adam I want to hide because I don't want to be exposed I don't want to deal with this thing because it's too painful it's too close to my heart and there are some of you like that this morning but there are some who maybe are unaware that shame is behind some of your responses and feelings and so I just put together a couple of indicators of shame that, again, these are generalities, there's not all of them, um, but these might be indicators that there are issues of shame in your life. Are you unable to receive compliments? Do you magnify your flaws to others? Do you have feelings of never being good enough? Do you take criticism personally? Do you automatically believe that people will think badly of you? Do you fear that people may find out what you are really like? Again, there could be many more that I could go into, but these are just some that 
as I was, I was looking, came to mind, you know, there are things that we struggle with, the fear of being exposed, the fear of being known, and we compensate in different ways that we try and detract from things to either cover up our shame or that we can't accept things that might be seen good about ourselves. And so one of the questions is, why do we feel shame? Shame comes when we have an expectation that is not met. That you, that you have an expectation that is not met. There's a quote and it said, I do not feel shame when I feel small at the rim of the Grand Canyon or sluggish at the slight of the fleeting gazelle. Because sometimes, you know, there are things that we just know about ourselves. We know that, you know, when you think about the vastness of the universe, you know you're small. You know, you're not like, man, I didn't realize that I wasn't bigger than a mountain. You know, it doesn't come to you as a surprise. You know that. When you see the gazelle run or, a, you know, Usain Bolt, and you say, oh, man, I can't believe I lost to Usain Bolt. You know, there's not a surprise in these things. Your expectation is at a level that is appropriate, and therefore you don't feel shameful in that scenario. But the question is, sometimes we have these levels of expectations that we're not meeting. And that's where shame has an entry point. And then the process of shame, what it means is that we take something and then we internalize it. And it doesn't become about something that's out there. It becomes about something that's in here. And so it's no longer about what we do, but it's about who we are. And so maybe, for example, I I, I thought I should beat Usain Bolt, you know? And I ran and I lost miserably to him. And then I I can look at that scenario and I can say, you know what, I lost. I'm not as fast. But then what the process of shame does, it says I internalize that and saying, I am useless. It takes an I am statement upon itself and declaring a truth. Now the truth is, I am not as fast as Usain Bolt. No one's denying that truth. But the question is, what does that mean about me as a person? So for example, you could say, I told a lie. But what that does internally, it says, I am a liar. And if you think about, um, if you've done parenting, one of the things that you're kind of encouraged to do as a parent is not to label your children in a certain way, to differentiate between behavior and character. Because, you know, children are going to be naughty. And you could say, for example, that behavior was inappropriate, that behavior was bad, that was naughty. But what you shouldn't do is say, you are naughty, you are bad, you are inappropriate. And so that kind of, that thing about disconnecting behavior from character. Because shame will take it upon itself. And so there are three questions I want us to think about. The first is, where did our expectations that lead to shame come from? Where do they come from? We have to understand the source of some of these things because as we understand the source, we understand what, in a sense, is the next question is, are they valid? Are they valid expectations? Should these things be in my life? 
Should I be listening to them? Should they have any authority or voice with me? And lastly, what do we do about them? Because sometimes we can get these things, we say, yeah, that's a valid thing. What do I then do about it? And one of the things we're going to look at is how we need to renew our thinking and also to receive healing and forgiveness from God. Okay. So, first of all, was where do our expectations that lead to shame come from? The primary uh, place that these things come from is outside of us. Things that we're told. Uh, one of the greatest sources of this is our parents. And, and the reason for this is that parents, or parental figures at least, carry an authority with them. So when a parent says something, it carries authority in, and that's more so when you're children, but even to a point when you might be old. Uh, and your parents can still have authority over your, your life, and maybe even now you might be thinking, I'm a grown man, I'm a grown woman, but yet there can still be a voice that comes from a parental voice that's coming and saying in your ear, this is this, this is this, this is this. And so there's something about these, our parents and our, these parental figures in our lives that carry authority. The other thing is that the things that they tell us, they tell us during our formative years. Now, in the very early years of your life, and again, I'm not some scientist, or, but I, I know enough about this, that in the early years of your life, your brain is being formed. That's why it's called formative years. You know, your brain is being formed and you're learning about life. You're learning about the world. You're learning what to think and what's real and what's not real. And so all this is coming and you're developing worldviews. You're developing thought patterns, almost like roads, pathways in your brain and in your life, in your emotions. And so the things that are said in that time, the things that you take upon yourself are very hard to then shift later on. They become quite entrenched and, and they form a lot of about who you are. Now, I just want to say at this point, you know, parenting is really hard. You know, if, you're not, if you are a parent, you know what I'm talking about. If you're not a parent, you maybe will find out that. But it's good to know. Anyway, parenting is hard and you've got parents. And even so, if you don't have kids yourself, you need to look at this and know it about your parents. Parenting is hard. Even when you try your best, you will fail. Just to put that out there, you will fail as a parent. Um, because, you know what? No matter how good you are, you will have bad days. You have days when you're not on your best form. You have days when you're not very well. You have days when you're stressed, when there's 101 different things going on. And no matter how much you want to love your child and do the best for your child, you will snap at them. You will say the wrong thing. You will be stressed and you will do things that you never thought you would do. You know, you never, they were not in the parenting books. And, you know, it's not going to go as you expected. You set out with this great plan and then reality hits, and that's life. And that's the same about you as a parent. It's the same about your parents. They, most parents do not set out to be bad parents. They set out to be good parents, but they are frail and imperfect people, 
and they will mess up. The other side of being a parent is that we can do all the right things and yet our kids just for some reason miss it. I had a conviction that I re- I've always wanted my, my boys to know that I love them. And I would say that on the whole, obviously give or take maybe a day, I tell them every day that I love them. Sometimes more than once a day. To the point that almost I want to be annoying sometimes. Um, but I want them to know. And then one day one of my children, I can't remember which one it was, said to me, you never tell us you love me. <laughs> and I was like, oh my life. And I was like, are you serious? Their perception was completely devoid of reality. Now, maybe they didn't feel loved for whatever reason at that moment, but there was no doubt, in my mind at least, that I told them constantly that I love them. And so even then, you know, as a parent, you think, oh, man, do I need to get a, like a, a banner somewhere? Do I need to, what do I need to do to convey this to my child? Because they will miss it. There are some things they're going to miss. So there are some things that we do, and there are some things we don't do. The the other reality is that there are bad parents. There are parents out there who are just bad parents. Um, They do not love their child. They abuse their child. They're violent to their child. They, you know, we know you just have to open up a newspaper and you see it. It's in there. And that's, again, there's a reality. And so some of us will get input throughout our lives from parents who are not doing a good job. They're not trying their best. Um, And again, I'm not saying why they're doing that. They have their own story about why they've got to that point where they cannot do this. And maybe they are carrying such shame as well that they cannot be a good parent. But it happens. And the trouble is, what that happens is that then the child will get all this information. And throughout life, we get all this information. Even as an adult, you get this information that's coming to you. And what you do is you interpret a situation and you come to a conclusion. And so when we're interpreting any kind of information, uh, sometimes, hopefully, we'll do that correctly. We come to the right conclusion But sometimes we will incorrectly interpret something. We can do this because we misinterpret information. You know, that someone smiles at you and you think, what's behind that smile? They're only doing that to hide up the fact that they're doing something else, that they've got a plan hatching. Um, You know, we've misinterpreted a, a, a simple thing. Or maybe we lack information we don't have all the facts and particularly then as children we don't have the emotional intelligence or the intellectual intelligence to always interpret things and come to the right conclusions and so you could think about this for example as a child imagine a child whose parent dies now you can look at that in a very logical way but for a child they can feel abandoned why did my parent leave me? Is it because they didn't love me? And you can look at that logically and think, no, that's absurd. They didn't have a choice. They loved you, but they didn't have a choice. They died. But for a child in that moment who is trying to interpret the world around them, they can't always do so in a very easy way. And they can come to a completely illogical conclusion. 
You can be shamed from outside by different things such as your race, your gender, your economic group. You know, we can look at all many things such as kind of um, this movement for slavery where people, because of their race, were treated as animals. They were put into the marketplace and traded. And I was reading about how, and I've probably seen it in films, where they would come and they would look, look at your teeth to see if your teeth are good, just like you might do with a horse. What is that communicating to someone about their worth as a human being? But the irony is that this can hit any of us. You know, I've traveled quite a bit. And as you travel, as a white English man, I have felt shame. I felt shame for what the British Empire has done around the world at times. You know, it's, and maybe you could say, well, you shouldn't feel that. But again, some of this is just what you're made to feel by others, what other people say, well, you did this, the British people did this. And I'm like, I'm, I'm British, I'm, I'm white. You know, and I can identify, and I can struggle with that. And so, even the fact you can say, "Well, you shouldn't do," but it doesn't mean just because we shouldn't do something, it doesn't mean we feel exempt that we will be exempt from it. And the other side of shame is that because of that, people then group together and then try and put shame upon others. You know that we we get together in our little groups, and that can happen. You know. Um, because one of the ways we seek to overcome shame is by reassuring each other, you know, well, no, we're really good. And so Millwall seeing no one likes us, we don't care because we're Millwall, super Millwall from the den. You know, because it's like, you're not going to shame us for being who we are. We're going to say, no, we're better than that. And we're going to put you down. And this cycle of shame just escalates around. I was thinking even, you know, we live in an environment of shame now that, People look at others and say, well, you're this and you're that. I was thinking about, you know, because of the housing crisis, because of the economic drop, who was the object of shame where we were saying, you know, well, they're the ones who should feel ashamed. It was the bankers. You know, that we put shame upon somebody else. Um, and, And I'm not saying they're guiltless, but again, the way we make ourselves feel better is by them putting shame upon others. Another outside source of shame, and this is a hard one, is the church. The the churches can be a hotbed for shame. And part of the reason for that is because within any faith, there's often a a very high level of morals. You know, if you read your Bibles and Jesus says, you know, even if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery. And you're like, whoa, Jesus, I failed there, haven't I? And then the trouble is, as churches, we then say, well, have you, are you keeping up to the standard? Are you keeping up to the law? Are you? And the irony is that God knew we couldn't keep the law, which is why he sent Jesus. Yet we seem to say to others, you still need to keep it. And where there was grace, it turns into legalism, and that turns into judgmentalism, and people can come to church just to feel bad about themselves. If you've been a Christian, particularly maybe... I don't know if people even still say this, but maybe if you've been a Christian for a while, you might have had someone say this dreaded line to you. Call yourself a Christian. (laughs) Call yourself a Christian. 
I thought you were supposed to be better than that. And suddenly there's a part of you that goes, oh, Jesus, I've let you down, haven't I? I'm a terrible person. And shame can come upon us. I think even in this church that there's been times where people have felt ashamed because they've not, they're not like that person. There was a, you know, I'm not on the pulpit. I'm not preaching, therefore I should be ashamed because that m- means I'm not a complete Christian. People have felt that. I hope you don't feel that anymore, but I know people have felt it. You know, they look at people and say, well, I'm not as holy as that person, I'm not as holy as that person, and therefore I'm, I'm, I'm a rubbish Christian. I'm rubbish. There's nothing good in me. God does not shame us. It says in 1 Corinthians 4, 14, it says, Paul was right, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. God wants us to be different. God wants us to grow and mature and be better. But he doesn't do things to shame us. The other place shame can come is from the inside. And it's hard to say where this comes from and maybe it's got outside influences and this is where it gets a bit messy when we think about where do these things come from. But I know one thing is the voice of the enemy inside will speak to you and say, you're not good enough. You know, you're, you're unworthy and, and speak these kind of things to you. But it could come from places maybe where you compare yourself to a sibling and maybe if any of you got a brother or sister and you've looked at them and said, oh man, there's so much fill in the gap, better looking, taller, shorter, slimmer, um, musclier, fitter, smarter than me. And you fill in the gap and, and some of those things are true. It's not saying it's not true, but it's then what we've done is we then internalise that feeling and say, therefore I am unloved by my parents. I am unlovable. Therefore I am lesser of a human being than they are. And we come out with these beliefs then about ourselves because of that. I know myself, and I wonder if there's an element of this for all young boys, is I wanted to be like my dad. I never really thought that. It wasn't a a conscious thought, oh, I want to be like my dad. But just by being there in that environment, there's a desire to be like my dad. And my dad, uh, some of you know my dad, um, but my dad actually... Um, he grew up in a kind of a working class background, really tough, um, kind of, he always says about how they used to have to take the metal tub out to have a bath in the, in the garden and stuff like that. And he, he left school without any qualifications, but he excelled in sport. He became, he's a, been a loving husband, devoted father. And so there was a part of me who's like, I want to be like my dad. But the trouble is, I'm not my dad. I wasn't raised in a working class background that kind of moulded him into who he was. I was raised in a more middle class background. I left school with nine GCSEs, three A-levels. I've been to university, got my degree. And I've done all right in sport things, but I've not excelled in the way that he did. And, And I'm not like my dad. But the trouble is, as a young boy, you can grow up and think... Therefore, I'm not good enough. My dad is good with his hands. 
I, I can do some things with my hands, but Louisa won't let me do a lot of things with my hands because they then fall apart. Um, you know, they're just not, it's all right, but it's not as good. And so there's that part of you, again, there's a reality in this. I'm just not as good at that thing. But the trouble is that then, as a son, I can internalize that and say, I'm not a man. I'm not good enough. I'm insufficient as a person. And that's something that God's had to work in my heart with. Even Jesus, he faced shame. There was a time when he went to his hometown and he was performing many miracles and they turned to him. Maybe they didn't turn to him, maybe they turned to each other. Isn't that Jesus? You know, Joseph, you know, jo- Joseph. You remember that one? Remember that family? Joseph and Mary. You know, she wasn't even married. You remember him? Jesus, the one that was born out of wedlock. He's only a carpenter. He's not even got a good job. You know, maybe, and they looked down on him and they despised him because of who he was, where he'd come from, his family, his upbringing. Jesus faced that, that pressure of shame as well. But the question he, he had to face and the question that we then have to face is, are they valid? Is this expectation valid? And the big question comes is, when we set a standard or expectation, is it a godly one? Where does this come from? Is it a righteous one? Is it reasonable? Is it realistic? Because if your expectation is, I must be the best. Now, I took Samuel Bowling yesterday, and my son does not like to lose. And he wanted to win. And the trouble is, there are 25 children bowling on one of those bowling ones where you push the ball down the ramp, and it's a bit hit and miss. There's no real... There is skill involved, but no, like... You know, you see the one kid who goes boing, boing, boing off the bumpers and gets them all down, and it's like, there's no skill in that. So you could do your best and still not win. And the trouble is, at one point, he was second, and I said, you're second at the moment. That's really... He was like... He was so devastated at that point that he was second... And I was like, no, it's all right. But he had this expectation that unless he won, that wasn't good enough. And I wonder, in a sense, what he was in that moment thinking, what did that say about himself? And as a good father, I was trying to reassure him. Now, in the end, he won. So I was like, phew, that saved me a a lot of hassle. But if you set yourself to be the best at something, inevitably, you will fail. Because Usain Bolt is the best at running the 100 metres. But at some point, there's somebody who's going to come along who's better than him. It's inevitable. Maybe you've got an expectation that your home should be spotless. No? All right. But the feeling is that if you don't do that, then it means that you're a terrible person. Maybe you put that expectation on your partner. And you say to them that they're a terrible person because they don't do it. Maybe you have this expectation, you know, I need to be a pure person and therefore I need to be undefiled. And the trouble is there are many things in this world that defile you. Whether it's just things that come in through your eyes or whether it's things that people might do to you. 
that maybe you have no choice over whatsoever. And then what does that say about you as a person because you had the expectation, yeah, we can desire these things, but we don't always control them. So the question is, what do we do about it? I want to just look at a few examples of how Jesus dealt with people. It's interesting that the word shame doesn't really come up in the Bible very much. But if you actually look at people's lives, you think, wow, I wonder what they felt in that moment. You had the woman, this is in John chapter 4, the woman of Samaria who went to draw water from the well. What type of woman was she? She was a woman who had five husbands in the past and the one she was with at this moment didn't have, she wasn't her husband. She was a woman who was coming at midday, the hottest part of the day, she was coming on her own, probably because the other women, you know what, they didn't want her to be with her. Maybe for good reason, because maybe she'd nick their husbands. But she was ostracized, she was separated, and yet she came to this well and there was a man there, a Jewish rabbi, You know what, the Jews and the Samaritans shouldn't meet together, they shouldn't talk together, particularly a man with a woman, it's just not done. But Jesus crossed that that barrier and he said, woman, will you give me something to drink? It's like, you want to give, what? You shouldn't be doing this. That's not right. Don't you know who I am? No one talks to me, everyone knows who I am, everyone knows what I've done. You shouldn't talk to me. But Jesus dignified her. He didn't think, see her as unclean. He asked for her to give him something to drink, to drink from her cup. He gave her dignity. What about Zacchaeus? This is in Luke chapter 19. I couldn't find a picture of Zacchaeus. But Zacchaeus up a tree. What do we know about Zacchaeus? He was a tax collector. He was short. How many people think they're insignificant because they're short? I'm not, you know, I've I've been in a lift. I'm not a bad height. I'm like five foot ten-ish and a bit. And I've been in a lift once with all these guys, and they were all like six foot two, six foot three. And I was like, I thought, how does Jana feel when she's like... (laughs) I did. But I I felt intimidated. I felt insecure. And I was like, oh, man. You know, we can feel that, you know, oh, little man, little man. What does that do to someone? No, it's fact. He was little. You know, it's not, there's a factual element to it. But it's when you then say, I'm little, I'm less because of that. And maybe that's why he went. And he became a tax collector because he was like, I'll show you who's little man. I'm going to rip off all your money. I'm the big man now, aren't I? Because I've got the big house. You're the little man because you're paying me taxes. And maybe that was his way to compensate for it. Yet he was climbing a tree because he had heard about Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He said, Zacchaeus, how did, how did he know my name? How does he know who I am? You know, God knows your name. Even when you're up a tree, God knows your name. Zacchaeus, wow. What did that do for him in that moment where he's kind of, I'm, an, I'm a nobody, I'm nothing. 
and suddenly this rabbi with a mass following says his name. It's amazing how such a small thing can be such an empowering thing. And God knows your name. He said, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house for dinner. What did everyone else do? What? He's going to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus is a sinner. He's a tax collector. He's robbed us from the mon- of money. A rabbi shouldn't be with someone like that. But Jesus was willing to cross that barrier. He was willing to see Zacchaeus differently. He was going to give him value and show them that he didn't need to be ostracized. Show him a different way. What about the woman in John chapter 8 who had been caught in adultery and thrown at the feet of Jesus? What was she feeling in that moment? There's a reason she had probably got to that point anyway, but then again, and then these group of men had just grabbed her and and dragged her through the streets and thrown her at someone's feet and saying, this is what this woman's done, this is who she is. I can only imagine she just couldn't look up from the floor. I wonder if that's why Jesus wrote on the floor, because that's where she was looking. Because shame makes you look down. She couldn't look him in the eye. But when he said, if anyone here is without sin, let him throw the first stone. And they all went. And she said, where, he said to her, where are your accusers? Where are your accusers? I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. You know, he could have condemned her. He could have joined in the crowd and said, yeah, this woman, she's done something terrible. Let's stone her. It was under, under the law, it could have been permitted. But when there was only him left, he didn't need to do that. And not because he broke the law. Just so you know, he didn't break the law because the law says there need to be two people who are witnesses. And he was left, just him. So he was obeying the law. He didn't break the law. But he said, I don't condemn you. And maybe she'd lived under condemnation all of her life. But now he was releasing her. And the woman who touched the hem of Jesus, what do we know about this woman? She was a woman who had this issue of blood for 12 years, spent all she had. And so she was a woman, she must have been well known in that area, because for one, she had spent so much money on doctors, she must have had money to begin with. So she was probably a well-off person at some point. And then she, you know, when in a small town, these were not big towns, you know, word gets around, oh, she's the one with the issue of blood. She's the one who can't come near us. Don't touch her. Do you ever feel like you can't be touched? Because if people touched you, if they came close to you, then they'd become defiled as well. But she knew she had to do something. She pushed through the crowd and she touched the hem of Jesus' robe and she was healed. And what did Jesus say? What what are you doing? Don't touch me. I know who you are. Do you know what he called her? Does anyone know? He said, daughter. He said, daughter. 
Again, such a firming, loving voice. You know, Jesus chose not to define the person by their sin or by their issue, but he saw something else in them. He did not overlook sin, because sometimes we think, you know, do we overlook sin? No, we don't overlook sin. Jesus didn't gloss over the issues, but he dealt with the person. He spoke to the person, and he could see beyond the issue. There's a story I just want to... hope we've got time. It's important, I think. In Luke 15, it's a famous story about the prodigal son. And if you don't know about this, this story, I'll just quickly go through it for you. So the prodigal son is a story about a man who had two sons. And one of them, rather rudely maybe, he said, Dad, I can't wait for you to die before I get my money. I want it now. And so his father said, okay, I'm going to give you your half of your inheritance right now. And the son took this money, he went off to another land, and he spent it on riotous living, probably on gambling, on women, and just lost it all. He got to that point where he had nothing. And then, obviously, he had to live, so he went and got a job feeding pigs. Now, for a Jewish person, feeding pigs was probably the lowest of the low. Not only that, but he was so desperate that he wanted to eat the food that the pigs had. He was like, I'd eat that. That's better than what I've got. How low must you be to be in that position where you're the pig feeder and you want to eat the pig food? How low can you be to be in that position? How shameful when he thinks back to where he was and what he had and thinking, oh man, if they could see me now. How shameful because, you know what, I had all this money and I've wasted it. How shameful because how did I treat all those other people? How did I treat all those women that I just slept with? And he could have just felt so overwhelmed that he wanted to lay down in that pigsty and die. He was in a real position of shame. But the son had a moment, and I pray for you this morning that you have a moment. Because he had a moment where he was like, wait a minute, you know what, my father's servants have it better than this. My father's servants have it better on this. And you know what, there was a part of him, and the moment was based on he knew something about the father. He knew what type of man his father was. And I don't know about you this morning, whether you have an inkling or a glimpse about the type of person God is. Because what I want you to know in this moment where you might feel at the bottom of shame, wait a minute, doesn't God love me? What type of God? I, I remember hearing that he's a God of love. I remember hearing that he's a God of mercy, of grace. Is it, is it possible that I could go to him even if I can just be his servant and I don't have to live in this position of shame anymore? He had this moment. You know what? The father in all of this how he saw the son didn't change. 
because his son was coming back to him. I've got a slide for this. His son was coming back to him and he was waiting. He was waiting for him. And when the son came, he looked and he thought, is that my son? Is that my son in the distance? And he ran to him. You know what? The son never stopped being a son to the father. Despite what he did, despite the money, the rudeness, the, 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 the lies, the, the squandering of the money, the sleeping around, the being with pigs, never changed that he was a son. The fact never changed. And to the father, the son was always a son. And I want you to know this morning that no matter what you've been through, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, God always looks at you and says, you are my son. You are my daughter. And it reminded me, if you've ever watched one of these shows like Cash in the Attic or the Antiques Roadshow or something like that, and people get these, this, this thing and they, it's, they, they, they don't value it much. You know, they look at it and think, oh, what is it? I'm not sure what it even is, what it even does. It's maybe caked in dust. Um, I remember watching some shows and they'd be like, oh, what have you been using this for? Oh, we, we put plants in it um, or something like that. And they're like, oh, do you realize how much this is worth? And, and there's this thing that you see an object and you don't realize it's worth. You look at it and you think it's a bit gaudy, it's a bit dusty, it's a bit kind of, I'm not sure it's you know, of any value, of any practical use. But when you give it to someone who understands it, maybe you give it to the one who's a, an expert in that field or, or even the creator of it, and they can see what it was for, and they can see beyond the misuse, they can see beyond the layers of dust, they can see that beyond the fact it's just sat in someone's loft for the past 50 years. Doing nothing, not being used, being useless. They see beyond that and they see, actually, if we did this to us, if we restored it, if we wiped away these things, if we put it in its right place, this is what it is. And it's of immense value. And you think... How does a father see a son? And all I can do is share you my experience. As most of you know, I have three sons. When they were born, they were useless. They couldn't do much. They would cry, poop, sleep. They would keep me awake. They, would, they cost me a lot of money. They cost me a lot of time. Um... But there's nothing I wouldn't do. And that's the Father's heart. And what I want you to know is that that's how God feels. It's funny because God feels even more than I feel. And that's the irony. God feels even more. And that reassures me so much. 
Because if I feel this, if I would bust through walls and do anything for someone who was useless, I didn't wait. And the father in the story didn't say, you know, once you come back, you need to prove your worth to me again. He didn't say, once you've cleaned up and you've, you've you know, you're, you don't stink of pigs anymore. But he loved them. Because to a father, a son is always a son. Yeah. You know, there, there are certain religions in the world that believe in, in karma. And I think deep down, we, we often believe that ourselves. We might not call it that, but what we believe is that, that people should get what they deserve. You know, you do something bad, you should get something bad in return. It comes around. What goes around comes around. Um, and the trouble is, when you read this book and when you understand our God, he is not a God of karma. He is a God of grace. Good, I'm glad we've got an amen. <laughs> because karma is, the, the, the whole point of karma is about what you've done. But the whole point of grace is about who you are. And saying God doesn't gloss over what you've done. It's not like these things didn't have a consequence. For the son in the story, there was still a consequence. He, he didn't come back and the father goes, oh, I've got another bit of inheritance for you. He didn't regain his inheritance. What he regained was his sonship. He'd never lost it in the father's eyes but he'd lost it in his own eyes and he came back willing to be a servant but the father made him a son again you know it says that God so loved the world which world? this world? the world that rejected him? the world that does evil things to one another? God so loved the world that he gave his son He, he put his son through something agonizing so that we might have life. And you know what? I, I used to hear people say this thing. They said, you know what? If it was only you, Jesus would have come. And I used to think, sounds nice, I don't believe it. And when I say I used to believe it, probably until last week, because I think, you know, Jesus, I can understand how you come for everyone. That's, that's good odds. You know, like, if you think about all the people of all time, you're probably thinking like 12 billion people, something like that, maybe a bit more. I can understand how you would make a great sacrifice for 12 billion people. What I, I, I don't understand is why you would make a great sacrifice for me. I just don't, un I didn't understand that. My laptop's turned off. I just didn't understand that until I, I really reflected on the Father's love. Because, as I said, there's nothing I wouldn't do for my son. And that's why God is looking at me and saying, You're not just one in 14 billion, you're my son. And I love you. There are three things we can do. 
I just want to kind of bring this to a finish. In order to respond to this issue of shame, the first is what we can do collectively. We must be a community of grace. I want to encourage you to be a community of grace. That means we are people who live by grace. You, you need to be dependent on God's grace because if you're not, you will inevitably become self-righteous. We need to live by God's grace, but we also need to offer that to others. And what that means is that we look to see a person and not the issue. Because the woman who came to Jesus to touch his robe, it said she had an issue. And that's what she was known by, her issue. And people can come in this door, maybe there's people already in this room, and we know their issue. Oh, that's that person, they, they, they do this. That's that person, they've got that issue. And you define them by the issue rather than the person. And we, I encourage us to be a community that defines anyone who comes in this place by the fact they are a son and daughter of God. They are a person. We treat every person with respect and with value, giving them back their humanity. And in some respects, I, I almost dare to say their divinity, not that we're gods in any way, but we, there's, we are spiritual beings made in the image of God, and we need, to be, we need to be a community that helps people restore that and see themselves as more than flesh and bone, but as God's child. There was a quote that said, the experience of being accepted is the beginning of healing for the feeling of being unacceptable. And you have a great opportunity ahead of you to give people that feeling of being accepted. And that will lead to their healing. The second thing we can do, and this is for those who have had things done to them that have caused shame. And what I want to say is that God wants to rewrite your understanding of yourself. What we need to do is to align our thinking with his and what he says about you. And it's very interesting, there's a few songs and I think we struggle to sing them. One is, well maybe, maybe it's just me who struggles to sing them. One is, he is jealous for me. Love's like a hurricane, I am the tree. You know, it talks about, oh, he loves us, oh, how he loves us. And we can get this idea of gushing love. And it can make you, if you're maybe a bit like me, at times you feel a bit uncomfortable because you're like, okay, calm down. (laughs) But the truth is, this is how God feels about us. Go through the scriptures to look and see what God says about you. And maybe you know things where it says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Maybe turn to the person next to you and say, you are wonderfully made. Do you struggle to receive that about yourself? Do you struggle to believe that about yourself? God is saying, no, you are wonderfully made when you were made and you were, you, there was nothing you could do. You were made that way and you had sin. You know, you were bad. You did naughty things, but you were wonderful. 
because that's how I feel about my kids. They are not well-behaved all the time. But they are wonderful. And that is how God feels about you. He's not defining you by all the things that you've done. He says you are more valuable than a sparrow, than a bird, than a lily in the field. You're more valuable than all these things to me. We need to renew our mind to know that we are lovable, that we are acceptable, that we are of great worth. And I don't know if you, that last one, I don't know if you've accepted that, that you are of great worth. There's two ways we can respond to that. We can go, oh, no, I'm of great worth. You know, we can be full of ourselves. And it's not designed to invoke pride and kind of, kind of that superiority but it's just knowing that you're loved and that to God you are of immense worth. So read what he says. We also need to reject the false expectations and look to God for what he is asking of you because there are so many expectations upon you that you've accepted and you've just accepted them and you need to look at those and go, God, is this what you expect of me? Because I dare say that actually I find the bar of Jesus is very low. And maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe a nicer word is manageable. Because, but I find it's quite low. And often I expect so much more of myself than Jesus is ever asking. And it's not to say he doesn't want me to be there. But I'm day one saying, right, you need to be this, Daniel. You need to be perfect in every way. And Jesus is saying, let's just, just, just deal with this today. Maybe you set out this year with 101 New Year's resolutions that you failed every one of them so far already. It's far better that you just started with one. And I feel Jesus is like that. He's like, okay, let's just deal with this. Once we're done with that, then we'll think about something else. He'll take us on, and he's very loving in how he cares for us. So that's how we might think about the things that are done to us things that have been put upon us. But then thinking about the things we have done, because maybe you've done something and you think, I did that, I know I did it, and I'm ashamed of it. I think the difference there is we think about guilt as opposed to shame. Because there are things that we have done and you should feel guilty about them. It's right that you feel guilty, because if you didn't feel guilty, you're, you, it means that you're probably evil. Guilt is a good sign because it shows that we're connecting with the heart of God. And the question is then, what do we do about it? Because we can say, God, I repent, because he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he brings us to the place of forgiveness, but also of cleansing. And that's how we should respond to our guilt. And we should say, God, I've done this again. I've done it wrong. Will you forgive me? Will you cleanse me? Will you change me? That's what God is saying, do that. Don't say, God, I am terrible. I am a failure. Yeah, you might have failed. It doesn't make you a failure. We all fail. Don't condemn yourself. Because it says he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. 
and often we're better at condemning ourselves. But he's not condemning you. He's giving you life. And he's not overlooking your sin, but he's saying that you were made for something better than that. That's not who you are. That's not who you are. Whatever you find yourself doing that you think you feel ashamed about, God's saying to you this morning, that's not who you are. That's not what you were made for. You're not that pot that was for a flower. You're a pot that was for my glory. And then renew your mind in the identity God has given you. Because you realize your actions flow from your identity. So if your actions are are not as they should be, then it indicates there's something wrong in the way you view yourself and the way you view God. And so this is a process of being renewed in our mind. I just want to finish there and just pray for us that God might come and just really minister his, his truth into our hearts. I do pray that in some of the things I've said, God's spoken to you. But I'll be honest with you, what you need this morning is a revelation of God's love to you. Because I can say it all, and this is one of the things for people with shame, they'll hear it all, and then they'll go, no, not me. That's not about me. I'm, I'm no good. It applies to everyone else, but not to me. But it applies to you this morning. Let's uh, close our eyes and let's pray. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit you'll come right now and just reveal yourself to us. That we would see you as you truly are. Lord, may you minister to us, Lord, your truth of how you see us. Lord, you declare that we are of great worth. Lord, and we're not saying this just to make ourselves feel good, to puff ourselves up, but we're saying it because that's what you've said about us. That's because how you view us. Lord, I just want to receive from you. I want to receive from you right now. Lord, come and give us fresh revelation, Lord God. He loves us, oh, how he loves us, oh, yes, he loves us, oh, how he loves yes, he loves you, oh, yes, he loves you. Oh, yes, he loves you. Oh, yes, he loves. Pray, Lord, just if there's any lies that are, are swirling around, Lord, in our head. The lies that are saying this is too good. Surely God doesn't feel this way about me. We just come against that lie now in the name of Jesus and ask Lord Jesus 
that you would reveal your love to us deep in our hearts. pray if you're finding this hard that in this moment that you would just have that moment that the son had when he was amongst the pigs just have that moment that would say perhaps perhaps God would receive me even if it's as a slave perhaps God will receive me and come and just place your hand, yourself before him now and just say God I don't get it all. I don't even feel it. I, I feel unworthy. I feel ashamed. But perhaps, Lord, you could receive me and allow him to speak truth over you. Allow him to come and put his arms around you. In all your shame, in all your, what you feel is your filth, and your worthlessness, allow him to put his arms around you and whisper his love to you. Amen. Thank you, Daniel. If you uh, haven't already, if you've got children, if you'd like to go and retrieve them.